Alrighty, so we are going to get started in, uh, let's say right now, because it's, it's a beautiful day and there's no time to waste. Um, so first off, thank you everyone for joining. Um, it's, it's really great to have everyone on the line today. We're here for the Community Matters Conference call. This is brought to us by the wonderful folks at the Orton Family Foundation. And today we are focusing on greening up your neighborhood. So we're talking about local environmental action. We really focused on engaging communities to take control and make green action happen in their own backyards. Uh, today we've got two speakers that are going to talk to you today. Uh, we've got Brandon Whitney, COO and co-founder of IOB from New York, and we've got Wendy Hawthorne, Executive Director of Groundwork Denver. Uh, both of them are going to give us a, a little perspective uh, about the work that they're involved in and, and share some of their insights, which is going to be terrific. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to go over the protocols for the call. Uh, we do ask that when you join, you put yourself on mute because there are quite a few people on the call and we want to make sure that everyone has space to be heard um, and, and we're not creating a lot of background noise. We also have a Google Doc that you can access throughout the call that we use to take collaborative notes. So jump on that and, and feel free to uh, share any case studies or um, take notes on, on what the speakers are saying, and after the call, that will be turned into a PDF and made available to everyone through the Community Matters website. In addition, we are recording the call, so um, this will also be turned into a podcast that you'll be able to download and listen to any time you like. Um, the other thing we, we use the Google Doc for is to take questions. So if you do have questions, please jump in there and write them in the, the questions section. And uh, at the end, please add your name, and then I'll use that to uh, call you out and ask you to come off mute and ask you a question and join the conversation. So if that makes sense to everybody, we'll get started straight away, and I'm going to hand over to Brandon, who's going to give us a quick introduction. Take it away, Brandon. Okay, thanks, Mike. Uh Hi, everyone. This is Brandon Whitney. Uh, I am one of three co-founders uh, of IOB along with my colleagues Aaron Barnes um, and Kathy Flynn. Um, and uh, we all met in, in graduate school at the Yale School of Forestry, uh, studying pretty different things, um, and moved to the city um, and, and had jobs uh, independently um, in 2007, I guess. And um, we came up with the idea for IOB uh, in 2008 and then the organization sort of became operational with staff in, in 2010. So we're still really young as an organization. Um, and so I'll just tell you a little bit about our about what we do and how we sort of came to um, to the approach uh, that, that we have to, to our work. Um, we started IOV because we really felt um, that the environmental movement sort of as a whole um, was, was at a moment when I think... Uh, there was something of a turning point um, that, that was needed. Um, and it was because of a variety of factors, and the first of which was kind of a long history of thinking about the environment as a place relatively separate um, from where we as, as people and as communities live, um, where we work and play. Um, you know, there's a, lots of history of images like the rainforest and wilderness and, you know, beautiful vistas, uh, with no real people in them. Um, and, and that was fine, and there's been a lot of progress uh, toward protecting those landscapes and towards you know, cleaning our air and water. Um, and then as, uh, you know, sort of in the turn of the century and as climate change became a more pressing con concern, we started to see more of that sort of imagery around icebergs and polar bears and talking about, you know, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which you can't see, and we were worried about um, how how abstract environmental problems were sometimes portrayed to people that were outside of what we would think of as the environmental movement today. Um, and another worry was around the lack of focus on cities, generally speaking. Um, the world's rapidly urbanizing, the United States is urbanizing, and um, there wasn't really a response to how we were supposed to think um, as citizens about our role in environmental problems from the perspective of being citizens of a city. Um, and the third thing was that 
we were really um, uh, interested in bringing in new constituencies into the environmental movement, particularly youth um, and and people of color, who I think were not necessarily part of the historical uh, quote unquote movement. You know, starting with Earth Day. Um, in, in 1970 and straight on through. And we wanted to diversify the movement a bit. Um, and those are huge, lofty goals, um, but it's sort of the context for our, our approach. Um, and as an organization, what, what we did was borrow a model of microphilanthropy or, or crowdfunding um, from an organization called Donors Choose, um, which does education projects, teachers post projects, and people from across the country can fund them. And we wondered if that couldn't work for local environmental action in people's backyards, in the neighborhoods where they live, in the cities where they live. Um, and so we started looking into it a bit and found that of all of the groups that take care of what we in, in New York here call the green infrastructure of the city, so your parks and playgrounds, the streets and sidewalks, um, street trees, um, they're about 3,000 groups that had been inventoried by some friends of ours at the Forest Service um, who were the stewards of these spaces. And um, about a third of those groups were entirely run by volunteers and operated on an annual budget of less than $1,000. And that's really when we had the idea that maybe this could work. So we borrowed that model of microphilanthropy and and built a website um, to try to connect New Yorkers who are interested in the environment to projects that were happening in their own neighborhoods, in their own um, boroughs, were, which were being carried out by, by their neighbors, by their friends, by community members. They may not know, but they might walk by on the street. Um, but those projects need just a little bit of money, for, you know, speaking in terms of organizational budget, $1,000 isn't very much. Um, they need a little bit of, of money. and. Sometimes sand power, women power, people power. Um, they need volunteers. And so we really tried to build this, this hyper-local connection using the Internet, um, but, but where online action around volunteering and donations could power the offline work and the changes in neighborhoods um, that people were, were working on. Um, and so that was our idea. Um, as I mentioned, we're a pretty young organization. We spent about two years piloting that, our approach in New York City, um, and recently, uh, just after Earth Day this year, uh, we announced that, that we were taking, um, taking the model national. So, uh, and we're really excited. We already have about uh, just over, I think, a dozen projects from outside of New York City, um, from some cities across the country. Um, and our, our approach is really just focused on connecting um, stewards of space and increasingly uh, people with great ideas for, for new things. We have projects in New York of people putting um, sensors in uh, the Kiwanis Canal, which is um, a super fun site, and measuring uh, combined sewer overflows and trying to come up with a system that alerts New Yorkers uh, that there's a CSO event occurring and so not to flush their toilet or, or um, to use extra water. Um, so everything from your basic sort of like community gardens and taking care of street trees, education projects, just sort of more innovative things around solar and technology, but all related to the environment and all really drawing on community participation and networks of uh, community groups and neighbors across the city and then, as I mentioned, now nationally. Um, so that's what we do. We've been um, really excited with, with some of the progress so far. We've um, been able to, to, uh, to guide over $250,000 in, in micro donations to projects, um, originally primarily across New York City, but increasingly now, as I mentioned, across the country, uh, which has funded over 125 projects to date. Um, so we're really excited with our progress, but we're kind of just getting started. Um, and I think that um, some of the things that Wendy's going to share with you about her, her work um, will really sort of pick up where, we, where I'm leaving off here. But I'll stop for now. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Brandon. Um, so I'm going to hand straight over to Wendy and, and pick up where Brandon left off um, to continue talking about the work of Primework. Great. Thank you. Um, this is Wendy, and, and thanks for having me on the call. I'm excited to learn from everybody. 
Um, Groundwork Denver's tagline is Community Action Environmental Results, but I thought it was very astute of whoever wrote the blog for this call that they they wondered about flipping it, whether it should be environmental action, community results, cause, and, and we have that conversation a lot, actually, because we find the concepts very intertwined. Um, we might start a project that has a goal of improving the physical environment, but results in civic engagement and community leadership and jobs and overall stronger, stronger community. Um, I'll just give a little background, excuse me, about Groundwork Denver. Um, we were created in 2002 in response to a study that found that um, while much of Denver was known for its parks and um, well-maintained streetscapes, that there were neighborhoods kind of falling through the cracks. Um, I think like in lots of cities, there are just some neighborhoods that don't have the political clout or the resources or um, whatever it takes to get those kind of amenities. Um, we were formed to engage residents in the planning process and implement tangible neighborhood-based projects that would improve the physical environment. So we generally our role is to build partnerships and provide technical assistance and wrangle funding and other resources um, and, and su generally support the lower-income communities in making a, a wide range of environmental improvements, but also focusing on um, building community involvement and developing leadership and job skills. Uh, we're actually part of a national network called Groundwork USA. I posted the map up on the the, Google, uh, the link to the map on the Google site. Um, there are about 20 of us in places like San Diego, Milwaukee, Yonkers, New York, Lawrence, Massachusetts, and um, some other big and small cities. Um, our work we're, we're all independent nonprofits with the same mission. So since our work is very locally based. The mission plays out differently in different locations, but we, we start to tend towards some of the same types of projects, like community foods and trees and parks and uh, youth employment, those kinds of things. Um, we have a, we, the Groundwork USA Network was started with a strong partnership with EPA and the National Park Service around the concept of turning brown fields into green fields or, or parks and greenways, um, and we still have that strong partnership and, and that piece of our mission that we've grown and diversified in a lot of different ways. Um, I'm sure everyone on this call knows Penta, Colorado for its big, beautiful, natural environment of the mountains and forests and things. Um, we have a really strong environmental community here that focuses on protecting our mountains and rivers and wild places. Um, at the same time, we have thousands of people in Denver who've never really been to the mountains and, and don't relate at all to that, that kind of environmentalism. Um, just like Brandon said, with Iobi, um, we found that people have to connect with the environment where they live and where they feel comfortable. So once we get to that point, we found that, that the interest in the environment, um, whether it's tree planting, toxic cleanup, energy efficiency, transit-oriented design, really cuts across income, ethnic, and language barriers. Um, I, I've had often kind of people in the environmental movement ask me things like, why don't low-income people care about the environment? And I think it's just this really big misunderstanding and, and definition of what the environment is and what you are supposed to do if you care about the environment, because I often throw that back at them of, you know, what exactly would you like them to do <laughs> to demonstrate that they care about it? Because um, often low-income people are the most, you know, they don't drive as much, they don't fly, they're you know, very resource conscious. So um, I'm just going to tell you about one of our projects that has, kind of deliver big results and engage a lot of people. Um, about four years ago, we decided that we, we wanted to tackle climate change at the community level. And our motivation was that we were seeing all the you know predictions of the impacts of climate change and knowing that those impacts were going to fall disproportionately on the same populations that we're already working with. So um, things like food shortages and health impacts and economic impacts would just make the conditions in the neighborhoods that we work in worse and you know than they are now. Um, so we decided that we would focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions but also on co-benefits. So um, what other benefit do you get out of doing that that has a more immediate impact and, and people would relate to more immediately. So we started our Porch World project on Earth Day in 2008 and we had 
15 volunteers who went door-to-door offering to swap out the front porch light bulb from an incandescent to a compact fluorescent bulb. And we saw immediately saw the power in this neighbor-to-neighbor conversation about saving money, um, energy efficiency, and climate change, and definitely in that order. So in terms of starting that conversation, it's usually about helping people save save money and then moving on to bigger topics in that same conversation. And we soon realized that there were lots of other things we could talk about while we were at the door. So the porch bulb became just a a foot in the door to a longer conversation and dissemination of resources that could have real impacts for people. So our volunteers now are trying to sign people up for the city's free recycling services, for free street trees and yard trees, which we plant at a later time, and to free um, in-home energy assessments, which also happen at a later date. Um, So now, I guess it's been about four years, um, we've had over 3,000 volunteers, and they've knocked on about 85,000 doors and engaged almost 20,000 households in actions that measurably reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Um, We've changed out 13,000 porch bulbs and signed up over 6,000 households for the free energy assessments and upgrades, and we estimate that... um, this has reduced greenhouse gas emissions by over 3,300 tons per year and saved the residents $265,000 a year collectively. Um, we haven't figured out how to track it, but you know, our hope is that some of that $265,000 now stays in these neighborhoods as opposed to going to you know, the corporations where we get our electricity and gas. Um, the thing, the thing that's happened from this as well is that because we're, we're a flexible organization and we try to meet the needs of the community, so we now have connected with a lot of people in these neighborhoods. And for thousands of them, we've been at the door and talked to them. And for several thousand as well, we've actually been in their home and we've you know, done energy assessments and changed out their light bulbs and added insulation and refrigerators. So... In that time, we've, we start to hear about other issues and concerns from people, um, and we're able to kind of pull together coalitions to address those issues as well. Um, just one example is that in one of the neighborhoods where we've done a lot of this work, we started hearing a lot about air quality issues and people talking about having their eyes burning at night and making their kids sleep in the basement because they felt that the basement was actually fresher air than being upstairs, um, and that the health department wasn't responding. So we were able to kind of pull together with some of the community leaders there and try to get the politicians behind it and see if we could get the health department to respond, which didn't really work for us either. So we were able to um, write a grant with the University of Colorado, and now the neighborhood is going to be doing their own air quality monitoring starting the summer. Um, We'll be training uh, residents to collect air samples and a lot of times this, these problems happen in the middle of the night, so the residents will be collecting the air samples and we'll be able to put that information together and bring it back to the health department and the political representatives. Um, so that's just kind of an example how one sort of large-scale outreach and, and organizing project leads to other projects and, and helps engage people and connect them. So I'll just leave it there and um, we'll kind of move on to the questions, I guess. Great. Thanks so much, Wendy. That was a, a terrific overview of the work that you've been involved in. Um, I think uh, together you guys have, have both highlighted a, a really uh, strong need for community engagement in all these kinds of projects. And I really want to throw open um, the questions now to people on the call. And I'm seeing a, a couple of great questions um, the the first one here is from Karen Casey. Karen, if you're on the line, please take yourself off mute and um, and ask ask your question here around inviting people in. Do we have you on the line? And if we don't, if uh, if Karen's having trouble getting off mute, perhaps then I'm going to make it onto the call. Um, the the question is really focused around how you invite people into this conversation. So how do you how do you first kind of reach out and get people involved? Uh, Brandon, do you want to take that first? Yeah, yeah sure. Sorry, I was on mute. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I mean, I'm not exactly sure um, 
it, it, I guess we're talking about this conversation about getting involved, right? And I think that um, w- one of the things that has been most uh, successful for us is to kind of point people toward um, the the actions and activity and the passions of, of people in neighborhoods or in communities already as sort of uh, the, the touchstone for for involvement. I mean, our organization, unlike other you know great uh, nonprofits across the country or or people that work particularly in one city, we don't have um, a particular issue agenda or just one thing that we're trying to work on. We're, we're sort of more of a clearinghouse um, for interest. And so when people have a great idea or people are, or just really want to get involved, um, we're often a, a place that they they turn. And the thing that I think has been really powerful about our work is to be able to make that connection between, you know, a New Yorker that didn't even know there were three community gardens in their neighborhood and that one of them was trying to build, you know, something new or that there was this fantastic new composting program getting started next to the um, uh, the farmer's market where they could also sign up for a CSA. And so it's really about the networking effect of, of all these local um, local leaders in, in neighborhoods across the city and, and, again, across the country. I think that's one of the best ways to sort of bridge what I think has been traditionally kind of a complicated question, you know, how do I help with environment, uh, environmental problems? People would get answers like sign a petition or change your light bulbs, and they were very um, sort of transactional um, uh, actions. It, it didn't, you didn't really feel like you were invested in, in the solution much. And for us anyway, and from the approach we take to our work, an important part of changing that is connecting people to other people that are working in it and that are passionate. But in a way that you can really see and feel because they're in your neighborhood because you see them frequently. Um, and for us, anyway, that's, that's a little piece of an answer to, to that question. That's uh, that's great. Um, I'm seeing a really great question here from Shanika Jackson that talks, touches on the same topic. Shanika, do you want to uh, ask this question to uh, to Wendy? And we've lost Shanika as well. Or if you're still on mute, um, the, this, this is really building on the previous question, Wendy. Uh, how do you grow awareness in your community about the importance of environmental issues and get people involved in building and maintaining urban community gardens? Um, well, I'll start with the first part of it and also talk, you know, a little bit back to the previous question that, um, even when we're doing something as simple as changing a light bulb out for free, we, we do experience that cynicism. You know, the first thing out of a lot of people's mouth is, oh, there's no way it's free, you know, um, and we have to kind of get over that barrier first. But I think in general, we try to focus on something either that someone's come to us and brought as, you know, as already a problem, they're already concerned about it, or if we're doing something like, climate change where it may not be on the top of people's mind to focus on something small that has an impact on them. It's very positive. Um, We've just given them a free light bulb. Nobody's asked for money or asked them to sign anything, and that just starts a conversation. Um, I don't don't know if I can answer the second part of that. Maybe someone else on the phone has more experience with um, getting people involved with building and maintaining urban gardens. We do get involved in that, but it's often the community coming to us and asking if we can help them do it. So there's already that interest there. So somebody else might answer that better. Great, thanks. Is there anyone on the call that wants to add to that, that has particular experience working in community gardens that wants to share? Don't be shy, folks. Maybe we'll come back to it. I do see a a great question here from Josh Arnold, who is actually one of the Orton Family Foundation's winners in their Stronger Communities uh, Challenge. Josh, are you still on the line? Yep. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? Good. Do you want to talk a little to your question here? Sure. Um, So I'm particularly curious about ways to... Um, you know, a little background. We have a successful um, service-oriented, environmentally focused 
um, project that engages youth, youth in these uh, sustainable home and yard makeover projects. We refer to them as sustainer raisers, kind of with the spirit of barn raising in mind. And um, one of the sort of opportunities that we see is really um you, you know having the the leadership come from the youth participants and a, as a platform for them to sort of build entrepreneurial or project management skills um because you know there's a real opportunity in addition to sort of the you know nuts and bolts kind of pun intended where you know they're practicing with a saw or a drill or some of those handy tools there's also an opportunity to practice with some light marketing, um, some volunteer management, you know, if, if they're a repeat volunteer to kind of build that, like, cascading leadership model, if you will. Um, and I'm just uh, I'm just at a loss for kind of resources or um, advice in, in how to develop that aspect um, of the program. Speak to that. Brandon, Wendy, who wants to take it? Um, I can throw one thing out there. Um, and uh, hi, Josh. <laughs> but I, I think that uh, um, sort of in the way that we do things, it's all about networking, as I mentioned. And there's a there's a um, really fascinating part of the work that that we're involved in that I don't think we anticipated when we started, which is around sort of that at least part of what you were talking about. It's about building the capacity of, of nascent leaders and groups in early stages of sort of formation and development, um, which we are not, do not profess to be experts at at all, or it's very small staff. Um, but we, we tend to partner with other groups in the city, um, and we're increasingly trying to figure out how to do this nationally. But, but in New York, anyway, there's a really great group called Partnership for Parks. Um, and it may not fit exactly what you're looking for, but they have a series of, you mentioned curriculum, I think I saw in your question, um, a series of, uh, of trainings that they have um, where leaders can, I think, sort of enroll. It's called an academy. Um, I can follow up with you offline and see if I can find a link. But it takes people through, you know, just the basics of group organizing, you know, volunteer organizing, how to start doing initial fundraising, you know, managing an event, some of those uh, basic um, group management and, and early stage organization techniques. Um, the other place I might point out that I know of um, is something called the New Organizing Institute. Uh, it's very much more about sort of political campaigns, but they have some great resources online, including videos and I think some downloads um, in some of those basics as well. And you can just sort of like watch the, watch the trainings. Um, those are the first things that came to my mind. Great, thank you. And I, I'll just add a little bit. Um, we're actually somewhat in the same boat, so I'd like you know love to hear from other people too. We we run a youth employment program for, I think we're on our sixth year now, um, where we employ youth from the the neighborhoods where we work, and they work on the type the projects that we work on. And they're also available to other community organizations who would like you know ten strong backs for a project. Um, and we also are looking at the entrepreneurial piece of it a little bit because we found that these young people are naturally very entrepreneurial. They're kind of always seeing things and saying, hey, what what can we do to sell that? You know, and now they're looking at some upcycling of products like some of the um, trash products that they see in the neighborhoods or um, actually looking at what they could do with all these incandescent light bulbs that we've been removing. Um, so the, I just thought of one organization here in Denver. It's called YouthBiz, um, and I think that they might have, you know, might be someone you could talk with that because they focus mostly on youth entrepreneurial entrepreneurialism. Is that the word? That's great. <laughs> it's great, folks. Um, Josh, it sounds like you've probably got a, a lot more to add uh, to this conversation. So don't be shy. Stick around and and. Add your two cents when you can. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, there's a question here about crowdsourcing loans from Maureen Curtin. Maureen, are you on the line? Brandon, I'm wondering yeah, if you yeah, can... Yeah, I am on. Are you on? 
Welcome. Why don't you, it sounds like you have some questions for Brandon. Well, I just wanted to hear more specifically about uh, how to organize crowdsourcing and um, what, is this for donations? Is it uh, an investment where there's a model where people are going to pay back the funds or your organization pays back the funds, which we're seeing? Um, yeah, uh, thanks, uh, Maureen. Um, I should have clarified, I guess, at the beginning that uh, these are all um, donations. So there's no, it's a, it's a philanthropy model rather than a lending model. Um, we have a lot of interest in that side of the same sort of landscape, but the work that we do is, is entirely on sort of the philanthropic donation-based aspect of it. So I don't know that much, actually, about how uh, those loans would get repaid. <laughs> so, Brandon, maybe you can give us a little more information about um, how, you, how you're encouraging people to donate. Um, and Because I imagine that's quite a different ask to volunteer. Sure. Um, so uh, our approach is very much centered, as I mentioned a couple of times, I guess, on on the, the project leaders, you know, so the people who are taking initiatives uh, in their neighborhoods. And I think we realize as our organization grew that probably the, the primary value that we can add is to help them raise the money um, for their projects. Uh, and so the biggest thing I think that we do is um, our, our grassroots fundraising trainings, um, which we offer all over the city um, and then on a regular basis at our office. Um, and we are pretty soon going to announce how we'll be doing that uh, nationally so that people can join in from, from wherever they are in the country through sort of a, a webinar model like, like the call we're on now. And um, the basics there, I think, um, without going into the details of, of the training, but the approach is basically that, you know, fundraising is sometimes seen, seen as a dirty word, <laughs> um, depending on your experience with it, but... When you're raising money from your friends and family, and especially from your neighbors who have sort of an investment in a faith or in change that they can, you know, see and experience because it's in their neighborhood, um, you're doing more than just raising money. You're also building kind of a base of, of donors, but also supporters. And as I mentioned, a lot of the people that, that use IOB are starting groups or early stage groups or even just individuals that are getting something off the ground. And so we reorient the conversation around like, oh, it's so hard to raise money a little bit um, toward what it's like to build a base of supporters who are invested in your work through sort of a philanthropic commitment. And it, it might seem subtle, but the way that you start to think about building power and building, um, uh, building a, a base of supporters through um, philanthropy and through that lens and also through sort of uh, the trade-off between being involved as a volunteer and then donating and or maybe coming from the other direction. Um, all of those dynamics make it a little bit different conversation than just, you know, sort of hoping that someone will fund your project from across the country or writing grants or something like that. It's, it's a different approach to your work. Um, and it doesn't fit everything, but if you're a group that only has a budget, you know, for the year or only has a project of a couple thousand dollars, it's probably easier to raise that money, you know, this way in sort of a crowdsourced peer-to-peer way than it is to rely on grants, you know, every year from, from the same organizations in your city. Um, we certainly found that as we were getting started, a lot of the places that groups like this were turning for the small grants to power their work just didn't have the funds. You know, they had to give away far fewer grants that year or none at all. Um, and so we were, I think, just so fortuitously started at a time when the economy, unfortunately, was kind of not there to support that level of work. Um, and and we're, we were surprised, I think, to find that individuals were still giving, you know, right through the worst part of the recession. Um, philanthropy at, a, at an individual level, at a small-scale grassroots level, stayed strong. Um, so, so anyway, that's kind of the approach to, to where the money comes from and, and how we're involved in that in that process. Great, thank you. Um, and now I wonder if you could both maybe build a little on um, on this idea of outreach and talk a little about how you use the web or social media 
or new technologies to really reach out and engage people. Wendy, do you want to take this first? Sure. Um, I think we, um, you know, we have social networking and things like that, but the communities that we are trying to reach, we do our best work by just getting out on the street and knocking on doors. Um, we've found the best technology is texting. You know, if people do end up giving us their cell phone number, um, and I recognize that this this is all changing very rapidly, but we've found that we just need to get out there and and knock on doors because that way we get we get to talk to everybody. We don't just get the people who tend to like to come to community meetings or people who happen to be connected through technology. So we're still a little old-fashioned that way. Josh, maybe you want to chime in on this. I know that your target uh, with Sustainer Raisers is, is young people specifically. Um, are there things that you're doing that you could share with people to really get the word out and um, and engage with people through social media or, or other types of technology? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how much I have to add to what's been shared. I mean, you know, we do our best to you know, leverage the Facebook and the blogging and um, especially the videos. I mean, I think short short video clips are really what generate a lot of traffic or attention online nowadays for, for whatever reason. Um, so we, we do our best to, you know, make little short videos. Um, but I think there's, yeah, there's nothing like the, the kind of word of mouth and then partnership piece. I mean, I think one of the learning curves that we went through was, you know, originally we were trying to set up a program and then, you know, recruit a a group of youth um, that would want to participate. And um, there's a lot of additional logistics there you know, just like finding transportation for those um, youth, just for simply finding those youth that are interested, doing, uh, you know, permission slips and, and that kind of thing, getting them if they have to get out of class or, or, or out of sports or whatever it may be. And so what our strategy really is now is to, you know, pitch the project to existing youth groups as, you know, here's sort of a, you know, for lack of a better word, like a turnkey, you know, project that we will host. Um, you know, you just show up. And, and um, so that, and that way they already have the logistical end covered, the transportation or, or whatever that, you know, that end of it. So that, I think, helped us, you know, with the outreach. But also just kind of the the vibe of keeping it really fun. I mean, you know, um, not making it something that people are, like, guilted into, like, oh, you need to do this, you know, to, um, you know, to do your part in climate change, you know, against climate change or whatever, um, which are very important outcomes of the work. But, you know, people have such limited um, time, you know, uh, in the days. You know, people are so just hyper busy nowadays, it feels like, um, that, you know, unless it's something that, you know, just is seen as a lot of fun, it's hard to get them to, to come out. And so, you know, we try to really intentionally, you know, like at the end of our last sustainer razor, we had a potato sack race, you know, just for the hell of it. And, you know, it's that kind of thing, I think, that, that actually people remember and, um, you know, then they tell their friends about it and then that word of mouth thing, you know, carries on. That's great. Uh, I love the idea of a potato sack race. Brandon, do you guys do uh, stuff like that? Uh, we have not had a potato sack race yet, but uh, I will put it on the list. Yeah, you're, um, you're missing out. <laughs> uh, so, Brandon, I'll I know you guys are using a lot of tech. Um, you have a web platform, and I'm sure you're all, all up in the social media. Do you want to talk a little about the techniques that you're using? Uh, sure. I mean, I'll just say quickly that I think um, one of the things that um, that we try to focus on, again, back to sort of like working with the project leaders themselves, is, yeah, you'll see some IOB social media, and, and we try our best to promote the great work of our projects. And but we're really sort of um, trying to get more people interested in our work who might have an idea to post a project or, as I was mentioning before, 
kind of the New Yorkers um, or people across the country that are interested in environmental stuff but don't, didn't know that thing, things were happening in their neighborhood. And so that's sort of the aim of our social media efforts. But uh, the social media that I think is has, is really effective um, are, are, are those efforts um, carried out by the project leaders themselves. So it's the people that are trying to, to raise the money from their own networks. And it's there that, just like Wendy um, and Josh said, um, I think texting has been really, really useful. We're still trying to figure out how to best take advantage of, of all of the really rapid changes around mobile technology, um, of which texting is just a part. But because we have, you know, this distributed network of projects across um, the country, I think we've got to we've got to figure that out. But more broadly, you know, everything like Twitter and Facebook and, and the blog and stuff. Um, the 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 use of, of social media by project leaders to get the message out um, is is really effective. I think it's been a big. We've we've done a little bit of um, data gathering and projects that have a coordinated strategy with using email and social media um, ahead of time tend to raise their money much more quickly um, and I think more effectively. So those trainings that I was mentioning before, we started to integrate some just really basic, um, you know. We have a lot of people that aren't really used to or, or familiar with Twitter and Facebook and that sort of thing. Um, so integrating how you can use these tools um, to get your work done, kind of taking some of the mystique away from it being hard because it's not, um, or that you have to be you know really crafty or smart to figure out how to use it. I think when you're just trying to generate interest for a project on your block, um, a few pictures, some smart stories, and if you can get uh, if you've got the time to pull one together, a good video can go a really long way, um, like Josh said. So that's that's a terrific advice. Um, what I want to do now is is throw it, throw some questions out to the the people on the call and see if anyone has a specific project they'd really like to talk about and and share with the group. Anyone feel game? Got a side group of people today, huh? Well, um, I mean, I'm, I'd be happy or honored to talk a little bit about uh, sustainer raises, if only if no one else uh, wants to jump on the opportunity. <laughs> Why don't you give us a little overview? Okay. Um, so I think I, I gave you a little context, but um, sorry, hold on here. Um, Essentially, uh, we are going around and um, offering people, uh, really, we focus on three things, uh, raised garden beds, um, compost bins, rain barrels, and clotheslines, I guess four things. Um, and that's sort of the, you know, we picked those because they're relatively low-tech um, and, you know, they're relatively you know, uncontroversial yet can have a big impact. And they're kind of, you know, again, like sort of that feel-good stuff. We also do uh, solar hot water installations, which are a little bit more technical, but, you know, equally fun and effective. Um, but, the, but the other ones, we can really in one afternoon set somebody up with this complete makeover. And, um, and you know, what we do is we come together as a group in the morning and kind of we do a little tour of each, um, you know, well, actually, we start with a, you know, a preliminary site visit with the homeowner and kind of get a sense of, you know, where, what design of a clothesline or a compost bin they're interested in or garden, and then, you know, figure out where the sun, you know, hits and et cetera. And then on the day of, we kind of meet in the morning as a big group, and then we walk around the yard and talk about each, you know, station, if you will. Um, and then we break off into different teams, and there's team leaders, and then we uh, do our thing, and uh, we have like a you know kind of barbecue or lunch um, together as a group, and then finish up any loose ends that we need to, and then come together again and have sort of a closing uh, circle. Um, so you know this is a, a program that we're we're really trying to strengthen the model and create sort of like a how-to you know booklet or ebook or template that we can then offer to, like I said, existing um, groups like, say, Boy and Girl Scouts or Habitat, um, 
you know, ideally groups with national networks, but by no means are, you know, limiting ourselves to that, um, that then they can use and feel really confident about hosting and, um, you know, gaining or just, you know, being able to offer that experience to their constituents and, you know, ideally turning it into, you know, it it becomes like a, a minor, maybe even like a fundraiser for that group. Um, you know, we're, we're struggling because, you know, what's behind this, the impetus, I guess, you know, our mission is that, you know, sustainable living and the tools and the resources for sustainable living should be accessible to, to, to everyone, um, you know, despite class, race, um, you know, gender, all, all those things. Um, what's, what's challenging is with the income piece, you know, even the materials for some of these projects can add up. Um, quite a bit for lumber, especially topsoil becomes really, um, you know, expensive hardware, that kind of thing. So we don't really have a great solution to that. We've been looking at, you know, can we get sponsors um, for this kind of thing? And um, that's just sort of an undeveloped piece. But I'm, I'm interested in how the, you know, crowdsourcing uh, or the, you know, IOB model maybe could could play into this. It's a, a terrific overview, Josh. Um, Brandon, Mary, do you want to do you want to make any comments or share some of your hard-earned wisdom with Josh as he's he's getting this off the ground? Um, this is Brandon. I'll just uh, I'll just say. Well, first of all, I think Josh has um, more hard-earned wisdom than than we do on this front, and I think that. Uh, <laughs> um, Certainly, uh, I mean, the obvious plug, if you're looking for a way to raise money, um, give us a call. Uh, but I'd really like to maybe follow up with you, at, um, you know, after offline. And, and I think maybe with Wendy, too, um, the, the, the like, how-to idea or, or kit or guidebook or, or whatever um, is something we're really interested in as well. We're just starting to produce some videos um, that feature the expertise of people leading projects uh, uh, on Iobi about how to do rainwater capture, how to do um, urban chickening is, is really popular uh, mm. here in New York. So how to do that, um, how to do a play street. Uh, but that's only one approach, and I think there's so much knowledge in the leaders that are out there doing these projects um, that sometimes doesn't even get shared, you know, from one project in Brooklyn to another in Brooklyn, let alone from one in Brooklyn to one in the Bronx, right. uh, and then I think much less across the country. So I'm curious how we take these you know, pretty simple idea. They're not that technical, right? right? And like, and they're totally shareable. Um, but we haven't totally hit on what that, what that looks like and how we get, get them all up in one place so that, so that people can find them. And we're, I think just like everything else, happy to partner, um, and collaborate with people to get it done. So, uh, think of us as a, as a, as a partner in that effort. And if there's any way we can work together, um, we'd love to. Yeah, you, you know, even things like um, you know sample press releases or you know um, you know sample messaging points, you know that become really uh, helpful when a group is kind of you know for the first time being introduced to to this kind of work. Um, it really kind of expedites the you know the or that's not the right word, but it um, you know it, it helps get over that that learning curve and get over any kind of intimidation that might be there um and i you know i I can't agree more that there are there's such a wealth of information out there or or experienced leaders with these really like you said simple and effective models that really need to be shared and um i am excited about yeah maybe catching up offline to explore that a little bit (laughs) But I'm, I'm curious, actually, following up on that, if I can just ask, like, if there's anybody else on the line with um, with good examples of of where some of this how-to, you know, so if you're in a city and, and you know that uh, people have turned to a particular resource for how to get something done, um, I'd love to know. So I think the um, that really basic practical stuff um, is often just as much an impediment as, you know, we don't have the funding or I don't have enough big volunteer uh, big enough volunteer group or, or, or whatever. So um, I'm curious if others know of great resources for kind of the how to aspect. I'll I'll quiet down in a minute here, but <laughs> the you know, in instructables I don't know if people are familiar with that, but that is a 
wealth of information about, you know, um, if you want to learn how to make a compost thing, you know, system or a chicken tractor, or rain harvest, or really anything. Um, it's a great thing. You can kind of customize the PDF that you want to download. Like if you already know, you know, steps one through five, you don't have to, you know, upload those steps. You can um, upload, you can customize your, your essentially your PDF that you download and then print if you wish or whatever. But um, Instructables is definitely something to check out if you haven't seen it. Yeah, that's a terrific, uh, terrific idea. Instructables, and I believe it's Instructables.com, right, Josh? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, fantastic ideas, folks. Um, I just want to take a moment to hand over to Rebecca from the Orton Family Foundation to talk a little bit about what's coming up. Um, there's a couple of new calls on the horizon. Becca, do you want to give us a little insight on, on those? I think everyone's having trouble getting stuck on me today. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Sounds like we might have lost Rebecca. Uh, but uh, what I'd like to do just to, to close this out today, uh, we've got a few minutes left. Um, Brandon and Wendy, one of the things that I'd ask you guys to think about was um, towards the end of these calls, we like to give people something uh, really clear and actionable to take away with them. So if there are three things that everyone on the call should do as soon as they hang up the phone uh, and... Uh, and, and can go out into their communities and get started with, uh, what would they be? One, two, and three. Wendy, do you want to take the first one? Um, sure. I, I felt like I had a hard time coming up with three because I felt like the first one is um, so critical to finding out what the next two are. But um, for us, it's... It's going out, just get out in the community and start talking to people and talk to the people that aren't the usual suspects, you know, so aren't the people who who you, you know, see at meetings and, and um, hear from a lot, but go to the more the most vulnerable populations and, and hear what they have to say because they're kind of a wealth wealth of ideas and information of, of the needs of the community. So... Can I just stick with that one? <laughs> and, and so go out and talk to them and listen to them and, and then move on from there. Absolutely. Um, and now, uh, Brandon, what do you got? We're losing other people. If you're talking, Brandon, you're still on mute. <laughs> <laughs> I said so many smart things while I was on mute. Um, <laughs> I was just going to 